Hey everyone, this is Charlie Shrem, and you're listening to Untold Stories. This is a show where we dive deep into the lives and personal histories of some of crypto's most influential leaders and find out how the crypto movement truly came to be. Let's dive in. Hey everyone, I'm Charlie Shrem, and you're listening to Untold Stories. These are trying days that we live in, and there's no better guest to talk about the different topics about coronavirus and crypto than Bill Barheit, the founder and CEO of Abra Global. Bill's also a really good friend of mine and got involved in Bitcoin in 2012. He's a former CIA cryptographer and early Netscape employee. Bill gave his first TED Talk on Bitcoin in 2012 when Bitcoin was only trading at like $4. He ended up deciding to become part of this new revolution and founded many years ago a company called Abra that allows investors to buy, sell, and hold, I think over 30 different crypto assets. They have like over half a million users over across of 100 countries and building out the payment rails and have successfully done over like a billion dollars in transactions so far. We talked today about coronavirus. We talked about some parallels going back to when he was at the CIA with the Soviet Union. We talked about who are the winners and losers here economically, financially. What does a strong dollar look like? We talked about paper money, Buddhism, meditation, all related to crypto, coronavirus, what you can do, how to keep yourself safe, but also how to have fun and how to continue to enjoy life. It's a great episode. You'll love it. Enjoy. Talk to you guys in a minute. If you're buying, selling, or holding crypto, you are a low-hanging fruit for the IRS. And for many years, I've been waiting for a good solution where I can be proactive in my taxes, but more importantly, to sleep at night. Before the IRS picks you for an examination, subscribe to our newest sponsor, Crypto Tax Audit. Crypto Tax Audit is an audit protection service designed for the needs of the crypto trader. That's you, me, and really everyone else. It acts like an insurance policy. Subscribers will get detailed instructions on how to prepare a great crypto tax return by yourself, including preparing the required anti-money laundering forms. If the IRS examines your crypto reporting on your tax return, the experts at Crypto Tax Audit will provide all the IRS representation and tax law research at no charge. The statute of limitations on a crypto tax return is six years. Crypto Tax Audit covers you regardless of what year the IRS examines, all for a low price of $97. Best of all, you can sleep well knowing that the best crypto tax gurus are ready to defend you. Crypto Tax Audit is a service of the Donnelly Tax Law. All new subscribers of Crypto Tax Audit will get a copy of the latest ebook, Does My Crypto Tax Returns Need Surgery? It's a phenomenal book. You get it as soon as you sign up. It's a short but super, super powerful book. While other services are reactive, Crypto Tax Audit are proactive and give you the tools like their Crypto Tax Health Check so you can reduce your chances of getting an IRS letter in the first place. No one likes that certified letter from the IRS. Donnelly Tax Law specializes in complex crypto tax return preparation. No situation is too complex for them. So check them out at CryptoTaxAudit.com. And listen, guys, start defending yourself today. You're a super loyal podcast listener, and you've been listening to my show for a while. So you know that Bitpanda, which is a company based out of Austria, has been working with me for a few months now. And I'm a huge fan of Vienna, and I'm a huge fan of Bitpanda. Let me tell you a little bit about them. Bitpanda is the leading European platform for investing in digital assets. Their core product is an easy-to-use crypto on-ramp and digital asset broker. 
They have over a million users, so you know they really care about their customers. What's amazing about Bitpanda is really how easy it is to set up an account and get going. They recently launched their own educational platform, and this is super cool, so check it out. Take a listen for a second, where you can learn all about Bitcoin and more. It's free, regularly updated, and you can earn five euro for free when you complete the quiz. So make sure you check it out, bitpanda.com. They are a big sponsor of ours, and please give them some love because they love me. Untold Stories wouldn't be here without the amazing production company, Blockworks Group. A few months ago, I approached Blockworks Group and I said, hey guys, I want to do a show, Untold Stories. Can we make it happen? And these guys are the only event and podcast production company that I trust. Really, the show is powered by them and it wouldn't be here today without the amazing work of the Blockworks Group team. So for access to all the premier digital asset conferences and to check out their other podcasts in their network that they produce, check them out at blockworksgroup.io. That's blockworksgroup.io. I promise you will not be disappointed. Hey everyone, this is Charlie Shrem and you're listening to Untold Stories. Very excited and it's an honor today to be with a good friend of mine, Bill Barheit, founder and CEO of Abra. Bill, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, Charlie. Bill, in the in the trying days that that we're in, um, you're coming to us from from California. Um, I'm I'm in Florida. It's um, for posterity. It's mid March, around the 17th or 18th, that we're recording the show. Um, what's going on in in California right now? Uh, how how has the lockdown been? Uh, you're not in you're in uh, you're not in like San Francisco in a city proper. So you, I guess it's a little bit better that you're in the suburbs. It's a little is that a little bit better for you? Um, the, the stay in place order that we received two days ago uh, affects pretty much all of northern. California, from San Jose all the way up to San Francisco. I'm in Los Gatos, which is a suburb of uh, San Jose, uh, near the Santa Cruz Mountains. And um, yeah, everybody's working from home. So I guess at this point, it's no different whether you're in SF or one of the suburbs outside. Uh, everybody's everybody's locked up uh, doing what they can to survive. It's insane. And you're in your life, can, is there anything that you can compare what we're going through, you know, like on a, uh, as it relates to uh, as an economic scale that we're going through now? Not really. I mean, I've been thinking about all the shocks that have happened in my life. I, I've gone through them uh, <laughs> working backwards, actually working, you know, from from the 70s, right? The oil embargo and uh, the, the 87 crash and uh, the, the Cuban Missile Crisis, people are like comparing this to. Yeah, I, I think this is worse. Um, I mean, that was a few days and um, I think people just don't understand exponential thinking. Right. So um, if you if you look at the amount of time that it's going to take to get a cure on the market um, and the uh, the viral rate at which this um, spreads, uh, it's. We're in for a long haul. I mean, this could be a year uh, or more. But what does that mean? A year? Like, I guess my question is: so let's so let's take a let's uh, take a step back. And um, when we're talking about a year, are we talking about a a year to like hit that that peak? You know, that peak curve to start seeing cases start to go like like down, so we can leave our homes, or like no, no. where it's fully eradicated. I think it's uh, no, it's 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 closer to the former, but I think it's going to be in stops and starts. So, so here's here, here's my understanding, right? So the the ability for the virus to spread 
uh, is has this factor greater than one. And anybody who works in software knows what that means. That means that for every person who gets this, more than one person is going to get it that you're in contact with. Okay, so so that means that no matter what we do, until we have a cure, this thing is going to spread. So basically, what should happen, right, is what, ha- what happened in China, is we're all going to basically stay in place, and the number of cases is going to level off, and many people are going to have this false impression that the cases leveling off means we have this thing under control, which is actually not true, because the moment we basically lift the stay-at-home or- orders, you're going to see the uh, virus start to spread again. Yeah. And, and this cycle will repeat itself until a vaccine is widely distributed globally, especially in the cities where, you know, most people, uh, where people are mostly concentrated. Um, but, you know, I think that could take up to 18 months based on everything I'm seeing, because you can't simply, we already have human testing going on, but you simply can't uh, just give a virus, uh, a, a vaccine to everyone because we don't know if it's going to kill the, um, you know, kill the people who are taking it. And so it takes months uh, normally it takes 18 months to, to test a new vaccine. And so obviously we're going to fast track that, but even then, uh, you can't do it in less than a year from my understanding. And so that means we're in for the long haul here, which means working from home is probably going to become the new norm for most people. Uh, no school, certainly through the summer, uh, and beyond that, nobody really knows. I, I think we're, we're in for a, a new normal. Bill, this may be a stupid question, um, but you, my research has has shown me that you worked as a cryptographer for for the CIA, and I'm not sure if you can actually admit that or not. Um, is that is that true? Actually, is that the case? Can I? Yeah, it was a long time ago. It was like I think I started there in 1988, so there was still a, a Soviet Union, and there was still a Berlin Wall, and, and okay, so that but that's the perfect that's it, that's it, perfect to my question. Weren't these things wargamed because? Weren't these, you know, a pandemic virus? I mean, how many novels, how many books have been written oh, about cool. what's going on today? Haven't we wargamed this? Didn't we? Shouldn't we have had a plan or a, a system to follow, like processes? I think. You know what I mean, did. I think we did. I think if you look back, particularly to the seventies and eighties, uh, when you think about things like nuclear war and, and fallout and. Uh, even in, in, in the late 90s, when the CDC and, and I think it was FEMA that, that had plans to basically deal with this type of situation, the last, you know, this, this administration has cut back on that funding significantly. And it's literally killing people. Now, look, I'm, I'm a staunch. Liberal. Those old posters where you'd have, you know, like masks being handed out to kids from the 50s. Yeah, I remember those. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, and for me as a staunch libertarian, I believe in very limited government. But this is one place where government can really add value and should be adding value. And we have completely dropped the ball. Now, we, we're catching up, right? We're catching up in the context of we're getting people to stay at home. Um, we're doing the hard work to get a vaccine created. Uh, but the plans that we had, I think, were by and large dismantled uh, by the current administration. In like a, a libertarian anarcho-capitalist world, uh, how would, you know, with a small government, uh, two-part question, where, where you have the, you know, the, the perfect government that a libertarian community or, or anarcho-capitalist community uh, would love, what would that government look like? And what would be one thing? Is is it health that 
in the libertarian society, we'd be okay, like funding a central government to take care of what are those things? Defense, health. Yeah. What are what are those things? And I, and, and how would that good question? I, I do think you need a, a decentralized communication system that's effective across local governments, right? Whether it's San Francisco, L.A., New York, or you know London and Berlin and Paris, uh, you need these cities to coordinate somehow. Whether it's through a system they set up or whether it's through a federal government, uh, the EU or the US or whatever, uh, you need some coordination and that can happen in many different ways. Uh, you know, you can't just assume that in within a few hours, uh, a billion people are going to self-organize to deal with something like this. So I think a right-sized government does include these kind of, of, of coordination capabilities for things like national emergencies, right? That would affect a billion yeah. people potentially, right? Um, you know, a, little, a certain a right-sized defense, certainly the amount of money we spend on defense is helping no one except the military industrial complex. I could go through every single, you know, branch of our government and, and right-size it for you. But the bottom line is, is that the more we push um, the responsibility down to local governments, I think the better off we are in the long term. And, you know, this is one of those areas where you need a happy medium between, look, most of the announcements in terms of what's really happening on the ground are coming from local governments, whether it's the counties here that announce the stay in place, um, you know, or individual towns dealing with schools. Uh, most of what happens in your daily life, even with this specific problem, are happening at the local level, right? Uh, it's just that now you have to have people coordinating because, if we're the only ones that do it, it doesn't really help, right? When you have this type of problem, everyone has to do it. So somebody has to facilitate that coordination. Uh, it's almost like an internet model of decentralized uh, communication that needs to that needs to happen. We're quickly realizing how important our local city, state, and county. Uh, elections are, governments are, budgets are. Now, hopefully, one of the things that we realize when we wake up out of this is like, hey, why are turnouts at local elections 6,000 people for a 100,000-person city, but for federal elections where it's like, who cares what's going on, you know, not who cares what's going on federally, but it's as, if not more important, what goes on locally. Now, with what's what's happening with these closures, uh, Human, you know, citizens of these of, of these towns and villages, we're, we're interfacing with our local government, our local police a lot more often. So if there's like better communication interfacing, more turnout, better local governments, you know, that that's one side benefit that that I think could be good. I think that could be a huge boon to the quality of governance uh, across this country. Um, I'd also, you know, talk for a second just about the school system. Right. So I worked on a committee here in Los Gatos where I live a few years ago to get um, one tablet or Chromebook type device in every child's hands in the middle school system. And it turns out now that's actually turning into a huge boon for that system because they're completely set up to deal with this work from home environment. So starting next week, everybody in that school system is going to basically pick up their, their online learning uh, as a replacement for their classroom learning. And hopefully, even if schools canceled through the year, they'll be prepared for the next school year. Um, and, and so that's something that I think all communities should be doing uh, where, you know, financially possible is planning for a model where home-based learning is going to be the norm at, even at the local level. 
I think you you made a very good point, and that is that uh, the the shining um, the one the, the shining city on the hill of this so far are the school boards and the departments of education. Um, I have to I have to say that, and and it did give me pause for a second because one of the things that my local school board here did was even though all the schools are closed, they set up forty six percent of 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 kids here in, in my local county um, of half a million people, 46% of the kids rely on their school for nutrition and for their food. Okay. And so what the schools did on the first, the next day, the next day after they, they, they shut all the five schools down here is they set the schools up as these uh, distribution centers for food as drive-thrus for the kids. Yeah. So the parents can come without touching other kids, or other parents. It's just wonderful. Yeah. And so like similar stories in San Jose and San Francisco, uh, most of the towns here in the peninsula and Silicon Valley are obviously wealthy enough uh, where that's probably not uh, necessary. But certainly in the cities, um, I'm hearing in, in, San, in different parts of San Jose, different parts of San Francisco, uh, different parts of Oakland, certainly, where, where uh, exactly that is happening. And it's, it's wonderful to see. And, and I'm glad that the communities have thought this through uh, and are making it happen. So um, I wanted to ask you about Abra. You know, um, the the model is a little bit different. And what I mean by that, and I know it's a crazy segue, but I, I will connect it to, to coronavirus, I promise you. Um, last night, I was actually telling a, like a funny story. This is totally separate. And someone's like, Charlie, not every antidote needs a story. And I was like, yes, it does. It's my job <laughs> to tell stories. No, um, but your model with Abra is a little bit different than other than other. Um, other apps, other companies in in our space, in that um, you download a, a Bitcoin wallet or a crypto wallet, like Coinbase or whatever, you know, a custodial, non-custodial wallet. You have, um, you know, the cryptos that you have are Bitcoin, Ether, whatever, uh, all the other ones like like you offer as well, Bitcoin, Ethereum, you know, et cetera. Um, and then a lot of them offer like stable coins and then they offer like fiat. So it's like a quasi bank account. You did something a little bit different. And what you did was actually the model that was talked about since the early days of Bitcoin that, that you were involved in. And that model is using Bitcoin as a payment rail rather than a, a, a stable coin. And what I mean by that was when someone downloads the Abra app on their on their phone and gets $100, so it says $100 worth of USD, uh, it's not a stable coin as, as I understand it. Rather, you're, 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 you're collateralizing Bitcoin and pegging that dollar value. So uh, two people around the world, you know, Philippines can send $100 to someone in Mexico, but they're not sending fiat, but they're not sending uh, a stable coin either. They're sending that value across the Bitcoin payment network yeah. uh, on the blockchain. That's right. So we actually support both concepts. We support uh, Ethereum-based smart contracts, and we also support um, uh, multi-sig Bitcoin. And, and, and in English, that means that we're using those technologies uh, to be able to move money around to do person-to-person -person payments without actually touching the banking system, which that's what excited me about Bitcoin originally. I get the narrative around digital gold and and that certainly adds adds value to society. And I hold Bitcoin, and I want its value to go up, uh, assuming that the dollar goes down. And I think I heard somebody refer to it as schmuck insurance. And I think in mm -hmm. that regard, it's great. Uh, love it. But I think, you know, for me personally, what got me super excited was the idea of replacing financial intermediaries. 
Uh, and, and that means banks, it means money transmission companies, it means other large payment networks that all have their handouts in, in the financial transaction. And, uh, you know, we've regressed a little bit in terms of that narrative, and we've made it very complicated the last few years. But, but I think we're going to get back to that uh, in this environment. And I'm excited about that and excited about the potential, particularly in uh, developing markets, markets where the banking system uh, is, is either very inefficient, non-existent, super expensive, or some combination of all of those things. Right. So, so let's, let's jump right that, into that. Um, and, and bringing this back to coronavirus, a lot of the talks on the news with the president globally, it's always, you know, uh, about the economy. A lot of it is about the economy. Yes, it's about health too, but it's always like the economy, the markets, what's going on. And it's so important. Everyone's 401ks, everyone's savings, et cetera. But how has the financial, the global financial system failed us as it relates to coronavirus? Well, first of all, let's, let's start with the basics. We can, we can talk about macroeconomics in a second. Let's start with the basics, money. So uh, the vast majority of the planet still uses paper-based money. And now I, I spent a lot of time on the ground in Haiti after the earthquake when I was working on various money transfer projects and mobile money schemes. And I'll tell you that Paper money is one of the worst carriers of disease uh, and chemicals and God knows what else. If you've ever read about what is on the average dollar bill or euro or Haitian good. Cocaine. Exactly. It's disgusting. Human feces, animal feces, drugs. Uh, now I'm sure it's, it's, it's this. So we need to get Corona. Rid- yeah, exactly. So, so we need to get rid of paper money. The problem is is that it's the last bastion of real you know, independence from Big Brother, right? Because it's a bearer instrument that basically requires no proof that you're the owner except holding that piece of paper. And so moving away from that should be to a solution that preserves the benefits of a bearer instrument-based model. And so you know, I think there is an opportunity for government-issued uh, currency in digital form, but it needs to preserve the bare instrument, you know, capabilities of fiat. So, so that's that's one huge problem, right? Is just getting rid of the paper because it's just downright disgusting. And that's something I've been talking about for I don't know, probably twenty years. But we only have a, a viable solution, a replacement for it now, uh, and that is extremely exciting. Now, governments are going to move very slowly for understandable reasons, uh, but I think their incentives are starting to change, meaning. Um, people are going to be having this discussion in an accelerated fashion now. How can we get rid of paper money? Now, the challenge is, is we don't want them to do it in a way where we simply force everyone to go get an account at Citibank to do that. Um, there's nothing wrong with having an account in a bank if that's what you want. But if you want to have the ability to take money out of the bank and hold it as a bare instrument, you should be able to do that, even with digital money. And uh, we need a solution that solves that problem. Now, the second problem is is obviously the Federal Reserve itself. And this is something that no digital currency is going to solve, right? So meaning, meaning a government-based digital currency is not going to solve that problem. Because if the government starts printing digital dollars, they're still going to be able to print as many of those digital dollars as they want. Uh, and that's what's going to happen right right now with this, with this corona situation, is we're going to see unprecedented printing of money that will make 9-11 and, and the 2007 financial crisis you know, look like Disneyland. Right. So it's crazy what's about to happen. But but that does that's not something that a digital currency solves unless traditional fiat simply goes away altogether. 
right? which we're decades away from at this point. A lot of people are making the case, though, that one of the the you know, one of the things that will come out of this is a stronger dollar, which for Americans and for America would, is great, but for the rest of the world will be terrible, especially as they're trying to borrow money to rebuild. The whole financial underbelly of the global world is the dollar. And we saw that slowly start to be like pulled away. We saw that like with the petrodollar, we saw Iran and Russia saying they're not going to use the dollar anymore and potentially Saudi Arabia, maybe OPEC or, you know, we saw them, we saw, or we talked about, or we theorized on this show and other places, the breaking up, the, the breaking of the dollar as a global reserve currency. Won't coronavirus just solidify the dollar now as the global reserve currency? Isn't it now going to switch? Yeah, that's a good question. I think it may in the short term. Uh, but remember, the dollar's value as a reserve currency uh, or efficacy as a reserve currency really is driven by the military industrial complex of the United States, right? The fact that we have military bases all around the world, the fact that, you know, we uh, were traditionally such a huge importer of oil, although that's not the case anymore. Um, we're the biggest trading partner for many countries uh, around the world. So, you know, I think all of the, um, the factors that go into driving the dollar's uh, status as a reserve currency are going to change over the midterm and long term. And, and I think that's a good thing right now. As an American, I'm supposed to believe in America first and uh, all that stuff. And, and so but the problem is, is I also as uh, somebody who believes in individual rights, believe in the value of of of, of my work and yeah. storing the value of that productivity in some type of investments uh, vehicle. And, and having those vehicles be dollar based means that their value gets eroded. Um, and, and, and so I think that we need a, a, a better model, and that better model is probably a couple of decades, maybe three or four decades out, but Bitcoin has shown us that that's possible for the first time. And if you actually look at what's been happening, um, it, it's incredible how few people have been selling uh, Bitcoin in, in the current market routes. Now, the price has fallen dramatically. But the sheer volume of sellers, uh, you know, is, has been minimal. Um, and, and so that's very encouraging to see. But, but the bottom line is, is that I think the dollar is not going anywhere uh, anytime soon. It may end up being on a relative basis stronger than other, uh, you know, globally accessible currencies, yen, euro, uh, pesos, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I think long term, it's going to go the same route as every other failed currency uh, in in government issued currency history. So so what's going on at this moment? Um, right now it's like mid March, and as we mentioned before, and governments are uh, some of them have you know already locked down. Uh, places like China and South Korea have started have have seen cases start to like go. You know the amount of new cases start to go down, but a lot of other places like in the U.S., uh, Thailand are still you know starting to do the lockdowns. What are governments doing related to their economy at this moment? Uh, what are they thinking about in their back rooms sure. as it relates to um, how they all work with each other? Meaning that are like the governors of the, all the central banks of all the countries talking to each other? Are they starting to plan for how, you know, are we going to be or, or Bill, are we going to see a less globalized world economically after this? Yeah, so uh, this is a this is a tough one, right? Because scary. If productivity plummets, 
there's very little that zero inch, you know, zero percent interest rates can do to increase that, given the context of the productivity decrease. In other words, if people are working significantly less hours, uh, companies are less effective because they don't have workers in the same place. If factories are getting shut down, car manufacturing is coming to a halt in some places. Uh, that makes it very difficult for low interest rates and the money supply being artificially pumped up by the Fed to actually make a difference. And I would predict that in the short term, it's actually not going to make a difference. And we're going to plummet into recession uh, for the rest of this year. And there's very little that the Federal Reserve can do about it in the short term. Now, the banking systems needs to function, right? And we can't afford to run on banks, obviously. Now, I think I read yesterday that the that the uh, the governments are pumping or, or the, the reserve banks are pumping something like a trillion dollars a day into the repo markets right now. So what that should tell the average person when you hear, what does that actually mean? Well, that means that governments are very concerned that the banks are not going to function as they um, normally are supposed to function. And so they're going to act and, and do their duty in a traditional fiat model to act as the lender of last resort to make sure that the banking system continues to function um, normally. And the U.S. is uniquely position to do that because of the reserve status. In other words, the, the U.S. can yeah. officially print money um, and buy bonds and buy other assets to uh, to effectively do that. And The and problem is, though, is that it, traditionally it's been commercial banks that had all these assets on their books. Now – and and then so the central banks would take the risk and then uh, the, the central banks would avoid that risk because they're almost like, you know, standing behind or, or hiding behind, depending on who you ask, uh, these commercial banks. Now it seems like central banks are starting to take on this risk of like corporate debt, you know, if they potentially bail out, uh, if we potentially bail out like the airline industry or the hotel industry. So then what happens next time? What happens next time? You know what I mean? It's worse. So, so we're still in this this trap um, that I think is going to play out over the next few months. So, think about this for a second. If hard, if you have a hard zero percent interest rate floor, meaning interest rates really can't go below that, so you can create this kind of you know negative rate situation. But that's like um, artificially, you know, it's it's zero percent is the hard rate, is the hard floor, right? At that point, real interest rates are likely to rise because there's going to be this. This kind of disinflation or deflation that happens with um, oil and other commodity prices, all the economic weak weakness and lack of productivity, and even more credit problems. So if that plays out, you're going to see massive credit spreads, um, and, and it's going to raise debt service payments, um, and God help countries that have um, all of this and, and some type of rising currency too. And that could really hurt the United States six, six to 12 months out. Uh, and all of this money printing, uh, quantitative easing that we've been doing, instead of absorbing the pain as a society, I think is is going to finally come home to roost, and and it's going to be ugly. And so, no, to take years. That's going to take months. Um, and so, yeah, big fiscal stimulation, uh, global monetary cooperation um, is it's needed, but it's not happening. It's really not happening, right? And and part of this is that we have an administration that is not interested in global coordination. They're really not, and and so we have to hope and pray that people in different Federal Reserve systems, different treasuries, are willing to do this, even though our own administration has a go it alone um, approach. 
Um, and so the fiscal responses, even that I'm seeing uh, for dealing with the immediate problem of the virus are tiny, tiny. We should be mobilizing this as if it was, you know, another Iraq war. And we know what that cost. But the human toll of this is going to be infinitely worse than any war, including, you know, World War II. And, and so, you know, we need to change our mindset immediately uh, and accept the fact that this is going to be unbelievably expensive. It's going to have an unbelievable impact on our global economy. Uh, and we have to take like dramatic World War II style action in order to get this under control and then ultimately get the economy moving again. Who are the financial winners and losers in this situation? Well, I, I think it's all degrees of losing right now. I think everybody's just all losers. We're just all you losers. Know, I, I think for the next year or so, uh, look, I mean, yeah, there was some profiteering going on in, in the Second World War, but by and large, you know, in, in a model like this, most people lose. And, and, and it all comes down to the fact that labor, you know, translates into productivity and productivity translates into uh, profits and those profits get, get invested in economies. And if that's not happening, everybody loses. And what's even worse is if we start printing money and, and effectively borrowing money, effectively the way that has traditionally worked is, is that the uber rich are effectively getting richer at the expense of the middle class who is servicing that debt. Uh, and, and so, yes, that will happen here, but it's going to happen from a, a base of much lower productivity, which is also going to have a significant drag on the net worth of, of the uber rich. And I don't think that but do we, the bar like what, what? is going to outpace uh, you know, their, their increase in asset value anymore. Are you worried about that dreadful certified letter from the IRS? Are you worried about the IRS auditing your crypto returns? Then you need crypto tax audit. They provide IRS audit defense designed for the crypto owner. Subscribers will get detailed instructions on how to prepare a great crypto tax return by yourself including preparing the required anti-laundering forms. Subscribe today at CryptoTaxAudit.com for $97. That's CryptoTaxAudit.com. And I want to talk about Bitpanda for a second. I mentioned at the beginning of the show that we're working with them, and we have been for a few months now. They love me, and I love them. So I'm asking that you give them some love and some support, especially if you're listening from Europe. Bitpanda is the leading European platform for investing in digital assets. It doesn't hurt. Actually, it helps that they're based out of Austria, which is one of my favorite countries in the world. And Vienna is one of my favorite cities in the world to visit. I try to go as frequently as I can. And, you know, meeting up with the Bitpanda team is always a pleasure. I really like Bitpanda's approach. Why? Well, basically, what they're doing is to apply the same tech that we're used to from Bitcoin and apply it to other digitized assets. And and I'll explain why. And, and if you check out their website, you'll understand how that actually works because they're really pushing hard for bringing crypto to the masses and, and educate people on the topic. Unlike other companies that just want to really give love to their customers, Bitpanda is giving love and, and, and spending money on mass adoption, just bringing more people into Bitcoin. With their recently launched educational platform, it's not only free, it's called Bitpanda Academy. It's not only free, but you'll actually learn and you'll earn five euro just for taking quizzes on their site. So it's a great way to force you to learn more about Bitcoin. Check them out. Again, they give me love. So I'm asking for you, my listeners, to give them 
some love. It seems like all the economic models and the productivity models, the simulations, you know, and simulations are only good when because they can give us like a like a good lower bound. But what what do simulations do? All these economic and, and financial simulations are based on the fact that we're going to be sitting at home twiddling our thumbs, not being productive. So productivity goes to zero. But I don't know. I just don't I don't see that happening. I feel like we're not giving ourselves enough credit. And I feel like we're more resilient than that, especially like locally communities uh, and local economies have been figuring out ways to continue uh, doing business. And so, yes, like there's a huge cliff and, you know, the economy uh, and productivity will see like as if someone stuck their hand inside of, you know, the economy's body and ripped out the guts, well, you know. Yeah. But but I don't maybe I'm being maybe I'm an over optimist. I am well, known as like a super optimist uh, yeah. when it comes to everything. I, I am, too. I do. I, I do consider myself an optimist. But and it's hard right now to be an optimist. But at the, on the other hand, I really think that World War Two is probably the better example here, um, you know, than than anything else that we have over the last 50 years or, or 100 years. And, you know, it was it was the do whatever it takes mentality um, and policies that basically say, hey, look, we have to assume the absolute worst here. We have to be prepared. We have to invest massively and we have to win at all costs. That was the mentality. And it was everybody had to do their part. Right. That was the the thing that we don't have today that 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 unfortunately war did for us is it created this we're in it together mentality where everyone has to do their part absorb their pain and get through it together and that's going to require investment at a scale orders of magnitude i don't use that phrase lightly but orders of magnitude more than what we're even contemplating right now right and and i see you know and i was looking at twitter last night and a lot of these congressmen and senators are, are talking about oh we have to put these restrictions on companies to make sure that they don't abuse the money. Right? That's fine. But if that's what you're focusing on, on day, effectively day one of this nightmare, we have a big problem. Because relative to the pain that we're about to absorb, this discussion about you know, what executives can and can't do is a waste of time. And, and so they don't understand the magnitude of what's coming, just given what they're focusing on. And, and while I am an optimist, I think it's going to take a little bit of time for those politicians to catch up with the reality of the magnitude of the situation. When you your first uh, your first job at Goldman Sachs was in um, fixed income research, what type of uh, I'm not going to beat around the bush. How the hell should people try to earn money as it comes to passive income in the future? Yeah, um, it's hard. I mean, it's. Yeah, it, it, it's really hard right now because, as I said, I don't know how else to word that question. <laughs> I don't think bonds are going to go higher, and so even with zero percent interest rates, I think we're in this model where where the bond market has played itself out, and you're going to see bonds continue to move in lockstep down with equities, and that's unprecedented, um, as far as I know, and and so that means that um, people are going to be looking for you know yields at some point, and they're going to have to assume that eventually markets are going to recover. But the reality is they're not going to recover over the next six months. They're probably going to recover over the next two years, uh, just given the fact that productivity is going to be in the doldrums. So investors really need to think relative to their age. You know, if, if, if you're in your 30s, you need to be thinking super long term right now. Um, that's why I'm talking to you here. Yeah, yeah I'm 30. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so, so that's fine. You can afford to go to cash 
and then slowly start to put, you know, one to two percent of your money back to work on each dip. That's fine. Uh, but if you're in your 50s and 60s, you know, you need to be very careful. You need to have uh, a certain amount of money in cash. You need to have a certain amount of money in, um, you know, income generating and, and yield generating investments that are likely to not go away. Right. Utilities, things like that. And so, you know, it's it's a it's a different environment now uh, than it was uh, two months ago. And I don't think that environment is going to change for at least a year. Um, and people need to uh, readjust themselves to a new reality, especially older people uh, who can't afford to take risks on asset prices that are plummeting um, and, and look at, you know, how they're going to survive uh, over the yeah, but, years. Bill, so but the, the, the all these older older people, you know, everyone uh, who's like 40 and above put their money in, in, in the markets. And a lot of people have come out to cash in the absence. And, and most people have. 401ks and financial managers and financial advisors who don't really do much except for put money into these funds that just sit there forever. <clears throat> In the absence of the ability for these funds to earn like percentages, where will people, where will these investment invite, where will these investment advisors put uh, the money? Will it just sit in, you know, really bad performing money market accounts uh, that have like low risk or maybe like, We'll see a shift in in the way investing is done to a little bit more risky things because now people have an appetite for it because they don't have the ability to make money in less risky uh, products. Yeah, I think I think we're going to have this this flight to yield, and a lot of people are going to. Oh, be- I like that flight to yield. So the flight to yield is basically, hey, I'm I'm making zero at my bank. Um, my the asset prices are plummeting. Zero uh, percent interest rates are not helping. What do I do? Right. And, and so a lot of people are going to be told, hey, do what you normally do in a recession uh, because we're going to recover. And that's probably true. You know, over the next uh, couple of years, we will recover. The question is, how much damage is going to be done to these investors because of the short sightedness of their financial advisors in the short term? And will they be able to recover in a way that allows them to live the kind of life that they planned for uh, effectively? And, and I'm, I'm only talking about the people that actually did reasonable financial planning. That doesn't even address the people who were already hurting, uh, f- for whom this situation is making things uh, almost untenable, right? Especially if you live paycheck to paycheck. And, and so we have a real problem that's unfolding in front of our eyes. Now, as I said, the first, uh, the first step here is to survive. And we're not doing everything that we can to survive at this point, right? We still have people moving around. Um, we, we, we haven't gotten this under control. We have people who are going to need to eat uh, when, they're, when they're locked up at home uh, who probably don't have access to food. Uh, and we need to solve those immediate problems. But beyond that, I think people need to address and accept the new reality that it may take you know three to four years for asset prices to recover. And in a model where we have this flight to yield, you need to be looking at assets that actually can generate income even in a down market, right? Whether it's utilities or, you know, other, uh, you know, as stock prices fall, all of a sudden certain assets are generating very high yields, right? So in the stock. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think rental income is doing well right now. Um, vacation rental income is not doing well. So like Airbnb actually made a very, uh, big decision and we'll, we'll know, we will know down the road if it was a 
you know, like a company breaking decision or it was a good one, but essentially Airbnb decided to screw, not screw over all the hosts, but to force morality on us and to allow all the guests to just cancel without, you know, so we're all, uh, I live off of our Airbnbs and we're all, we're just at a loss of of money. I've heard this story all over the country and and actually in different countries as well. Uh, that people who, you know, support themselves via rental properties on Airbnb and VRBO are basically dying right now. And we were doing it anyways. Like we were lending our tenants. We were giving them refunds. Uh, I have all the college kids living in our Airbnbs now for free. Like let us be, I guess, don't force morality on us is what I'm going to say sometimes. Like let us have an opportunity to be humans sometimes. I I don't know why they did what they did. But I think I think it's going to be very hard for Airbnb to survive unless they either change what they're doing um, or, you know, figure out a whole new business model. Uh, but they were already losing a lot of money <laughs> as a company. Right. I mean, I don't know if they want a path to profitability. They have a great team uh, from what I know. Uh, but um, I think it's look, I think it's going to be very hard for them and for the Ubers of the world to survive this downturn. Uh, Airbnb lost it all when they uh, when they lost Brian Armstrong to found Coinbase. Once they lost Brian, uh, <laughs> I'm just yeah. I'm joking. I always tell Brian that. But um, but yeah, I mean, so uh, I, I, I'm a host on Airbnb, but exclusively, even though I could be on others, uh, Airbnb hosts are very loyal to Airbnb for a reason. But we'll see. I mean, so we'll see how things shake out. You'll see such a such an economic shift. I'm almost like looking forward to it, to watch it, um, because it'll be stories that I'll tell my grandkids one day, you know, like li- living through this. So, uh, you know, like keep your ears and eyes open, people like just watch, watch the world. Of course, stay healthy, but watch the world and remember, write down, write down the types of businesses that are being doing well right now. But my the coffee shop that I buy coffee at only is, is allowing basically set up uh, a big like uh, table in front of the front door and is only allowing people to buy coffee to take away. Mm-hmm. But I was talking to the owner and he said, our numbers are up because people now are, are not going to, they need things to do. And so <laughs> look at those businesses. Let's talk about some other businesses. What, what businesses locally have for you have shifted to allow them to stay open? Like what type of what, or have you seen like around the world, like what cool business models? Like I saw actually uh, a local drive-through car wash is now trying to become a testing facility because the car wash already, like everything is built for, for sealant to not allow soap and water to come into your car. It's built, it's built for that. Think about it. Like when you go through a drive-through car wash, soap and water don't, don't go through your car. So now they can amend that model potentially to be testing locations. What cut to, so that's all I'm trying to say is like, look at the silver linings almost. Watch, uh, watch and learn. Yep. And that will tell you, and, and this will um, be the difference between the uh, economic winners and losers over the next 20 years. Sure. Look, people are going to survive, right? I think that by and large, the human race will come out of this um, stronger than it was before it went into this. Um, And people are resilient. uh, People are entrepreneurs at heart uh, and people will find a way. And and so that's great. I think we need to accept the fact that one of the uh, risks of globalization and one of the ongoing 
realities of the new uh, model of globalization that we've created over the last 30 years since the rise of China started has is this risk of pandemics. And people have talked about it for years. They've been largely ignored. But the reality is, is when something can spread virally, uh, whether it's, um, you know, Facebook's uh, user base or, or a virus, um, those things uh, need a, a host. And in this case, it's people. And the more global we are as a society, the more hosts we have and the faster these things are going to spread. And that's simply uh, a reality. And it's not something that you can, you can be prepared, you can be better prepared than we are now, but you need to accept the fact that that's one of the prices of globalization. And, and I don't think that's necessarily a good thing or a bad thing. It just is, right? And if we accept that, we can actually be better prepared for the next one. And there will be a next one because the, we've had a 2,000-year history of pandemics, even in a, a, a non-global society. They've been very localized where we've had you know, people dying from, from the plague and Black Death and things like that for 1,500 years. Um, but now we've got truly global pandemics and they're not going away. Um, they're going to happen again. And the question is, what are we going to learn? But to your earlier point, people are resilient. Uh, people are, are, you know, we'll, we'll do whatever it takes to survive. We have electricity, we have running water, we have utilities, uh, we have internet. We're way ahead of where people were when pandemics were happening a thousand years ago. Uh, so we will come through this and, and we'll get through it and be even stronger. I I couldn't agree more. And and how how is Abra going right now? How many employees do you guys have? And and how's you know your company uh, morality, your staff? Uh, tell us how how you're dealing with this. Yeah, morale's good. Uh, people are working from home. Uh, we use Slack. We use Zoom. Uh, you know, we're constantly talking and communicating online. Um, you know, we have a a normal two week sprint cycle in our development team uh, that hasn't changed. Uh, we've got some really cool new features that we're releasing over the next few weeks. Um, we haven't actually changed our release schedule at all. So a lot of that stuff is is, is all going to be live. We're going to be rolling out an interest-bearing product for, for different cryptocurrencies in the U.S. and internationally. Uh, and so so all that stuff is, is, is just moving and plugging along. Um, morale has been really good. I mean, look, you know, I, I don't want to sugarcoat this. People are worried. Right. Uh, and, and, and Amber doesn't have a, a layer of Teflon over uh, employees, you know, worrying. Right. And so, yeah, we have people with children. Um, you know, our head of engineering is uh, Willie, his is, is, um, wife is a doctor. And so, you know, we spend a lot of time talking about the impact of this on their family and the toll it's taking. And look, we want people to to be safe. Um, usage has been fine. Uh, we saw spikes when the crypto markets were going crazy over the last uh, week or so. Uh, and so we are kind of like everybody else in crypto land, uh, even though I think we have a better product. We do get ups and downs relative to the volatility of crypto prices, um, although I, I think that's going to change for us uh, over the next year or so. I think with a lot of the payments and investing features we're launching, I think the spikes will flatten out a little bit, which is a good thing. But yeah, I mean, look, we're, we're doing what we have to do to get through this. Uh, we're focusing on on not only... Um, surviving, but how can we grow the business in any environment? Uh, how can we get off of the dependency upon the volatility of crypto prices, which is a relatively big problem in our space? Most companies suffer from that problem. And what do you uh, mean? What do you mean by that being a problem? Well, if you look at revenue in companies in the crypto space, companies that actually generate real revenue, that revenue is volatile. It goes up and down, almost in lockstep with the with the price of Bitcoin. 
And that's not a good way to plan a business. Now, if you're Coinbase and Binance, your revenue is going up and down from an enormous base, right? So you're, you have the problem, but the problem is, is not as acute uh, as it would be for a company that is, you know, maybe on the cusp of break even or, or, you know, burning cash, which most companies in the crypto space are burning cash. And so the question is going to be, as uh, investment dollars dry up, what are companies doing to uh, generate more stable, predictable revenue and get to cash flow break even and sustainability so that, so that they don't have to go seek investment dollars in an environment where investment dollars are going to be hard to come by? Right? This isn't 2017 where everybody was looking to invest in anything with the word crypto or blockchain on it. Uh, and, and so... Um, you know, companies are going to have to really focus and look at their burn rates and, and hunker down and, 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 you know, adjust to this new reality. What is the new reality? I mean, is this new, is this reality like a temporary one or is this reality something that we should just prepare ourselves to, to go through over the next few months, if not year? It took about four to five years to get over the hangover of the 2007-2008 financial crisis. And, and, and some of the effects lingered longer than that. Uh, money has been so cheap and so easy to come by the last five years that people forget the last three years, four years that people forget what it was like uh, after Lehman failed. And, and so um, I think we're going to be in a, in a reality that's even worse than 2007. I think, um, you know, you're going to see a, a big downturn in private equity markets. Um, you know, very few deals getting done. Uh, there'll be a trickle down into, into venture. Uh, prices on the venture side are going to plummet. You're going to see a lot of cap table resets. You're going to see a lot of companies fail. Um, you're going to see some early stage deals getting done, but valuations are going to plummet, uh, as they have done in every significant downturn. Um, and, and venture will be will be no different. Uh, but that means that companies that already have uh, significant venture funding are going to have to make do with that funding. And um, that's just the reality of this world. So I guess like going back to the money's still there, right? Like money just didn't. In fact, there's more money now. Um, what does a, the logistics of an economic stimulus look like? This is what I was like. I was laying in bed last night um, and actually the perfect person to ask this. And am I saying to myself, logistically, how would we do a like situation where we gave a thousand dollars to every american how would that work logistically well logistically you'd, you'd probably mail checks uh and people would have to deposit those checks into their bank um and and that's just the reality of how things work that happened if you remember when we were running a surplus under bush two and uh, i think there was a government rebate uh, some silly rebate check that went out to everyone which created an artificial bump in, in uh, GDP growth for, I think. The, I don't remember that. What happened? Yeah, it was in... Um, I was too young. Yeah, it was right uh, after Bush took office uh, and the economy was, you know, teetering a little bit. And, and I don't remember all of it, but I remember there was a huge spike at, in Walmarts of people cashing checks uh, because Bush, you know, the administration basically gave rebates to just millions of people. Um, and it had a short-term, one-time impact on the economy, and after that, it was completely forgotten, um, and the money was effectively wasted from from a real fiscal policy, fiscal management perspective. But in, in in this situation, now I'm hearing real, you know, left-wing discussions about should we in, in initiate a a semi-permanent uh, universal basic income in the United States until, at a minimum, until this 
um, kind of situation uh, flattens or plays itself out. I get the discussion. Uh, it could be effective. It's possible and probable it would be a financial waste of money. Um, I think it would create a new floor on prices because basically you're, all you're doing is... Um, Why not just add a zero then? Well, that's what, that's what happens in hyperinflation, right? You just add zeros, but you know, the rate of inflation. So is it, so it's, it's basically this red herring, right? So. But the whole effect of like mailing a check, people going to Walmart, you might as well, I mean, it's the same exact effect as if you just add a zero to everyone's bank account. The problem is it doesn't have the psychological benefit as mailing someone a check and that person yeah. physically going to Walmart, cashing that check, buying something with it. And then it cycles through the economy, right. I guess. Is that why? Right. I think universal basic income is, is, misunderstood by a lot of people or the idea. But I think let's 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 put that aside for a second and focus on um, the people who are really hurting. Right. So if you have people who are out of work, if you have people who um, you know can't make their rent payments, can't can't have the electricity turned on, live in the desert and summer's coming and they're not going to be able to have air conditioning and they're going to die from heat exhaustion. We need to fix that fix the situation for those people now. Right. And and that means probably, um, you know, long term unemployment benefits. It means adjustments to how welfare works um, because we don't have a better solution now. I can design better government solutions for you. Give me a year. Uh, and I've thought about this and how to push things down to the local level. But but we don't have time for that right now. We have to fix the immediate problem. And this is what's coming as we translate, you know, as, as this goes from winter to summer and then probably another winter again. And, and the un unemployment numbers are going to swell, uh, particularly in, in this kind of, um, you know, mid-market mid com companies, what the Germans call the middle stand, is going to be decimated because those are the companies that don't have huge cash piles. Apple, Facebook, Google, Amazon, they're, going to, they're not only going to survive, they're going to thrive, okay? It's, it's the mid-market companies that can't survive without, you know, by losing six to nine months of, of, of real cash flow. They can't lose six to nine days of real cash flow, dude. Well, yeah, that's, that's a whole other level of pain. And, yeah. you know, I think, I think this, this – um, Anyway, so I think and it's not, but it's not profit. Like you, you, you use the, key, I, I love talking to people who understand economics. You use the key word. You didn't say profit. You said cash flow. And this is what people need to realize. It's not about profit. It's about a, a business's ability to earn cash flow and then have that flow into paying their suppliers and their people and their staff. Absolutely. You could have a, a business be insolvent, losing money month over month over month that has cash flow that could just, lose money for years. Our economy is so, is so interconnected in so many ways that people don't understand, right? I mean, you think about the companies I mentioned that I said are going to be fine, Apple, Google, Facebook. They have so many other companies that are dependent upon them being successful. It's insane, right? Whether it's software developers or supply chain or logistics companies, Right. And, and that's a good thing in, in, in most instances, um, especially when those companies are likely to thrive. But there's other aspects of the economy where, you know, probably in auto manufacturing, for example, where it's going to be a disaster for the next couple of years. And the supply chain there is, is probably going to be decimated as well because nobody's going to be buying a car anytime soon. Right. And so how housing, this housing construction is probably going to slow 
uh, or scream to a halt. I'm, I'm not an expert in housing construction, but I can imagine that that's likely going to be the case. So what is the trickle down effect for all of the companies that work in, in housing construction, right? Uh, home furnishing, et cetera, et cetera. So, so I think we're in for certain sectors booming, especially online, and certain sectors uh, getting decimated. Um, and Won't it balance itself out, though? Those online entrepreneurs won't want to build houses? Or well, it'll just take years to balance itself out, it you It will take years. And that's what I'm saying, that we have to focus on the short-term pain um, and making sure that people can survive. And I need. I, I love that. that. Yeah, I hope that we do it in a way where um, it doesn't benefit people who don't need it. Um, and that's why I'm a little worried about um, all these discussions I'm seeing, you know, uh, online with some of these uh, progressive senators who are focusing on the wrong thing right now. Uh, and and so we need the progressives to some degree to have a more healthy debate. But even they, at some point, need to focus on the right things. And I hope they do. Um, and, and so I think that as they begin to understand the, 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 the magnitude of this pain, which I don't think they do yet, I think their perspective on how to address the pain is going to become more realistic and more, uh, dare I say, World War II-like. Which, which you've, 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 studied, um, you've studied a lot and, and you've had businesses that have, uh, that have been very successful. So the question that I have for you, because a lot of my listeners are uh, startup executives, are VCs, and are people that, that have companies, you know, uh, digital companies on the internet, crypto or non-crypto. What should their go-to-market strategy be now for their products or services? Should yeah. they be launching building? Should they be holding pattern? I mean, what, what would your advice be for your, for your fellow colleagues? I would be looking at what I need to do to get to profitability in any environment. Meaning, let's assume that things are going to be bad or worse for the next year, just as a baseline. What do I need to do? Uh, what are the hard decisions that I need to make to create a sustainable business now in this downturn? And then once I've done that, what are the opportunities that I have to actually grow uh, in this environment, right? I mean, some of the best, most sustain sustainable businesses we've seen um, you know, grew out of either the dot-com bust uh, of 20 years ago or 25 years ago or the 2007 downturn. But we have a lot of entrepreneurs now that have never lived through a real downturn because we've been in this 11-year boom cycle, right? And so this is a, a new norm they're going to have to get used to, and they're going to have to assume that there's no cash well that they can go back to with a bucket uh, to survive. And so what do I have to do? What are the hard decisions I have to make? Then, then what are the opportunities? And I think in online and mobile and, and, and those kind of devices, I think the opportunities are enormous. I mean, the amount of money that's being invested in home fitness now, uh, in home education, in home entertainment, gaming, streaming, it's incredible, um, you know, what the opportunities there are. And I think that's going to live, those opportunities are going to live beyond just this uh, downturn, right? And so those companies have a huge chance of, of, of becoming sustainable. I think healthcare, um, home healthcare, um, you know, uh, all these meditation apps that I see, I love them, by the way, I can't get enough of these apps. I, I, I <laughs> Which one do you like the best? I've not been able to, to successfully meditate. Well, you know, I use Calm, but I, I, I am able to successfully meditate. And so I just love their app. I love the content. I love um, their process. It works really well for beginners and advanced users. 
Um, but I have, a, I have a few, um, I can give you for the show notes, but, but I, I do, I do go to calm, uh, as my kind of go-to app. Um, and, um, yeah, I mean, look, I, I still run, I run in the trails. I use uh, Strava, uh, which to track my runs. And I share that with other people around the world that I'm friends with. And it's kind of like a Facebook almost for, uh, for people who, you know, work out. Uh, particularly for biking and running. And I think there's so many opportunities for entrepreneurs in those areas. I haven't really seen. Uh, and the other thing I'm hearing about is a lot of companies now uh, in the crypto gaming space, right? I'm hearing about, you know, companies that are trying to, to, to create these new type of either skill-based gaming platforms that have prize-based components and, um, you know, new types of uh, digital gaming asset management systems that transcend lots of different games uh, using um, a crypto slash blockchain solution. And, and so this is a great time to be working on those types of, of, of products uh, because I think there's a real need. Um, it's just going to take entrepreneurs who are in this for the right reasons. Starting a company and working on a company that's really small in an environment like this separates the people who are in this for the right reasons uh, and good reasons from people who are in this for a quick buck. Because yeah. nobody is going to start a company in this environment who's in it for the quick buck. And that's probably a good thing. And it's like the early days of Bitcoin, right? When, yeah. when, when you and I got involved. Yeah, I mean, you weren't really there for... Yeah, absolutely. I mean, everybody who is in it to make a quick buck is gone. And and so the people who have been willing to put their heads down and build important products, focus on user experience, focus on product market fit, uh, make do with, with smaller amounts of cash, those people are still around and they're thriving. Uh, but most of the others have, have gone away. Buddhism is a, uh, was actually is, well, I can't guarantee this statistically, but at least in the prison that I was in, Buddhism by far was the most popular religion. I mean, like there was like standing room only at Buddhist services every week, which I went to um, for the reason that you just said meditation. When you're bored hmm. in jail, what do you do? You're reading, you meditate. And so yeah. Buddhism was, I wonder if we'll see like Buddhism numbers go up after this. I, I don't know. I mean, it's a really interesting, uh, you know, statistic. I would love for somebody to analyze that deeper because I, I didn't know that. But I, I get the meditation part because it's oh, yeah. helped me tremendously. You know, I have um, uh, I have three boys and I have them half half time and and uh, I love them dearly. But right now, the the, the, the level of noise uh, in the house and the, and the video games is, is, are right. The decibels are rising. It seems like every day and and, and the meditation has been a, a great go to for me. And, um, you know, I, I hope everybody who's listening to this, um, you know, goes and downloads Calm and, and tries it. I'm not a paid advisor or anything to Calm. I just think it's it's fantastic. And it's one of those things where. The, the technology can really make a difference in your life. Um, uh, on that note, another good side benefit is that uh, COVID-19 opened up people's eyes to that of the government's monopoly on education. I mean, so that's an, an amazing side benefit too, I just realized. Well, I also think that it shows how little the federal government actually does in the education space. <laughs> and, and so that, that education really is a local phenomenon. And that's, that's fine. I, I think that's good. Um, and so people say, oh, my God, how could you eliminate the Department of Education? Well, people don't realize how little they actually do. Right. I mean, yeah, they set standards, but most of the standards suck anyway. And people who are homeschooled generally outperform people who aren't. And, and so, you know, that should tell you that we need to focus on empowering local governments 
to right-size the way we educate that's relative to the local cultural requirements. The, w- the requirements for being educated in Palo Alto are very different than the requirements if you're in Oklahoma City, I'm sure. There's probably 70 to 80% overlap in the requirements, but the 20% is difference is huge. And, and they need to be able to make decisions on the ground as to what that means. Poor environments have a very different uh, requirements for putting people to work and making sure that people can be employed. And so we need, uh, you know, local environments, local governments, excuse me, to be empowered to do things like, you know, uh, educational training for different types of, of vocations. And, mm. and so I would better trust Santa Clara County where I live to do that than I would any president uh, because they're not in sync with, you know, what needs to happen. And I'm also not interested in somebody in New York City, 3,000 miles away, subsidizing the education, vocational training that somebody's going to get in San Diego. Yeah, that's a good point. Right. And so if anything, I think that this may, you know, a lot of people are, you know, probably uh, unhelpable in this regard, but I'm hoping and it may open people's eyes to the idea that the libertarian idea of pushing and right-sizing this government down to the local level uh, as best you can is the best way for us to manage uh, collective societies. Bill Barheit, thank you so much for for taking the time and and coming on the show today. Um, Founder and CEO of Abra. Uh, I really, really appreciate it. What a great conversation that the listeners need to know. This is like not timeless. This needs to be released next week, which I'm going to do. So thank you again. I really appreciate it. And, uh, And stay healthy, please. Thanks, man. You too. Stay healthy. Stay safe. Everybody wash your hands. Uh, go outside, go for walks, uh, keep your distance, but uh, we'll get through this together. Yeah, I'm actually going right now and I usually go do my workout after, but since the gym is closed, I'm going to go to the park and I have a, I got a TRX band and I'm just going to do the same workout. So Fantastic. substitute, substitution guys, don't give yep. up. Don't sit at home and cry. Yep. Be smart. Stay safe, everyone. Thanks, Charlie. Hey everyone. Thanks for listening. New episodes of Untold Stories are released every Tuesday and Thursday at 7 a.m. EST on untoldstories.com, Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. Untold Stories is produced by Jason Yanowitz, Michael E. Polito, Reed Hannaford, and Riley Silbert of Blockworks Group. Our account executives are Gina DeFelice and Julie Muroff. Our content is written by Kathy Zolo, Ronnie Tishner, and Scott Offer. Special thanks to Wayne Dallaire from Jump Dog Audio Productions. And of course, I'm your host, Charlie Shrem. You can follow me on Twitter, at Charlie Shrem, to continue the conversation. Send me some messages, feedback, or anything you want to say. And remember, please give some love to my sponsors, and I'll see you next week. Remember, strength in numbers. And information is power.